Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Um, welcome to a Friday Fireside Chat. Uh, I'm Rita McGrath, and I will be your host, I guess, for this. Um, I'm joined today by Judy Samuelson, who is the Executive Director of the Business and Society Program at the Aspen Institute, one of the I would say most highly regarded think tanks on issues that look at that intersection um, in terms of what, what business owes society, what society owes business, how do we make those two work together uh, better. And very excitingly, she's got a fantastic new book that's just out. Uh, it's called Six New Rules for uh, Business. And um, I'm going to be asking her to talk about her book, answer some questions, talk about events happening today. Um, we do monitor the chat a little bit for questions. So if you have questions, feel free to pop them in. If we don't get to them all uh, live, we will respond to you after, after the seminar is over because we capture them. Um, and uh, without further ado, welcome, Judy. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be doing this with you, Rita. Oh, it's a real honor. I mean, you're somebody I've wanted to meet forever. So this has been a fantastic excuse. Um, so let's start off with uh, the premise of the book, Six New Rules. And uh, I'll just lay them out and then um, perhaps have you comment on what, you know, why this book, why now? Uh, so rule number one, reputation, trust, and other intangibles uh, are seen to drive business value, not just physical assets. Businesses are able to serve many objectives beyond shareholder value. Corporate responsibility defined far outside the business gates. Employees give voice to risk and competitive advantage. Culture's king, talent rules. And we need to be co-creating to, to win. I think those are the six big headlines that, that you talk about. So let's uh, let's go back to where this, this started. What, what got you working on this? Why this book? Why now? Well, it's, the idea started to take shape before I founded the Business and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. I was... I, my background, I came, I'd spent time in government in California, went to business school, was in banking. And then I went to the Ford Foundation where I ran their, what today would be called their impact investing program. And in that period of time, we had these kind of um, corporate, we used to call them the corporate titans who sat on the board of the Ford Foundation, you know, Henry Schacht of Cummins Engine and Bob Oh, I Hoffman. love Henry. He taught at Columbia for many, many years. He's oh, right, of course he leader. did. Amazing leader. Yes, he's an amazing leader. Bob Haas of Levi Strauss, a, a company that I write about a fair amount in the book, and you know David Kearns of Xerox, and they were saying, why, why doesn't, why doesn't the Ford Foundation ever talk about the business sector? You know, it's steeped in economic development and and uh, communities, and you know, it, it's almost like it was a missing piece of the puzzle, and it, it set us on a track where, within a few years, we had launched a program called the Corporate Involvement Initiative that was designed to take capital that we were investing in communities and, and assure that we were levering, you know, leveraging the capital in the private sector so we could have a bigger bang. And we had been doing that for a while, but we started thinking more consciously about businesses that seem to be ahead of the curve, that seem to more naturally embrace ideas and, um, you know, like Levi Strauss, that had simply had a different ethic about how they worked with these communities in which they um, in which they manufactured in the Southeast. That would be one example that caught our eye. And what came out of that was a desire to work in business schools. And I launched this program. And throughout this entire period of time, we moved from working in business schools only to working in business. And, it, and I've always been drawn to where's the leverage point for change here? If we, need, if we need business at the table and we need business at the table, it is the most important institution of our day. We need to unleash its, its remarkable 
capacity, its global reach and distribution systems, its problem solving skills, the talent, all of these things that you talk about, we need to unleash it to tackle our most complex problems. We won't get there without business. And if, if business plays to a different hand, it holds us back. And so I, I've gradually kind of collected these ideas over a long period of time. I had an opportunity to take a month off about eight years ago, thanks to the Rockefeller Foundation, which gave me a month to uh, think and uh, started on that. But so this has been in formation a long period of time, I guess is the way I would say, but it comes out of our work in dialogue in working with uh, change agents in the business sector and beyond. Mm -hmm. Well, and the book actually takes quite a long sweep of time, which, which, which I like because it, you know, it, 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 it allows you to sort of see how various pivot points in the emergence of this story have occurred. And of course, one of the most famous stories is the Enron story. Uh, which a lot of younger folks that we talk to now, that's kind of ancient right. history, but very much alive in the conversations that we're having today. And another story that I think is is very moving is, and again, people have forgotten this, the story of uh, Ray Vagelos and the mm. river blindness medicine. Um, and That was a moment. Meeting it, him yeah. was a real moment. Did so you So tell me about that, because I've only read the business case. I've never met him as a person. Well, I, um, I was still at the Ford Foundation, I had made half of the decision to, um, to see if I could create something to amplify the work we had been doing. And I was testing whether or not the Ford Foundation would underwrite me to get going. And uh, when you're at the Ford Foundation, anybody will take your phone call. They never know why you're calling and they think you might be coming with money. That's the way I always thought of it. So I used that calling card to a fairly well in my last months there. And I was, I was just wanted to, I wanted to know more about this story. So the story that's written up in the Harvard business case, I went and spent an hour with him and it changed what I thought about the purpose of the corporation. Mm. Um, you know, the story of course, is that um, going back now decades that um, Merck, he was the CEO of Merck at the time and they had discovered a drug. They had produced, had, had the ability to produce a drug that they thought was going to be useful in something having to do with heart disease. So it could be a massive seller in developed countries. And instead, it was not serviceable for that, but it's kind of like off list use. It was a cure for a devastating <clears throat> disease called river blindness is Mechtistan is a drug and there's a much longer term for what river blindness is is called in its scientific name, but it's a devastating disease and it you know, exists in some of the poorest parts of the world in river valleys and in uh, Africa in particular. And he had to make a decision and about whether or not they would produce a drug that would have simply no revenue associated with it. And how would they go about doing that? And he didn't, he tested the idea with his management team, got no, he tried to find other people to take over the IP. But what, what, what takes you, deep into the question of purpose is he knew they needed to proceed because he knew at the core of Merck's success was their scientific talent. That, that was what they were about. That's what drove their success. That was their key asset. It wasn't about their ability to <clears throat> occasionally make a blockbuster drug. And he leaned into that and he knew what it would mean to these scientists if they did not proceed and chose not to produce something that was a life-saving opportunity for people who needed it the most and essentially negate the product 
of their scientists. And that was a change for me because I all of a sudden peeled back this kind of idea about the purpose of the corporation and realized it really depends on the company. Every company has a different purpose, but if it's not connected to something as profound and as connected to their business model as it is at Merck, you may be missing the potential. Well, and I think the in the business case, he's quoted as saying, <clears throat> I looked at our mission statement and our mission statement says to preserve and protect human life. Right. It doesn't say anything about providing returns to shareholders. It doesn't say anything about protecting right. preserve human life as long as we can make a profit on it. <laughs> you know, it wasn't anything like that. Um, and I think I think that that his recognition had he said no, you know, the scientists would have felt betrayed. The company would have, you know, clearly seen that he he didn't believe it. You know, that, right. that, and I see so many of these symbolic disconnects with senior leaders today. Where, you know, yeah, sure, the thing says preserve and protect human life, but what they're actually doing is something completely different. And I think it's produced a lot of disillusionment and cynicism. People, you know, young people especially see that and they go, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you compare in the book, you compare um, Merck with, at the time with Valiant. Mm-hmm. Don't even know that I want to go there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like can't be compared. Um, I would say about Merck that this was not the only instance of them having built and they built phenomenal goodwill as a result of that decision. And they are still producing this drug. They have stood by their commitment. You know, somebody, Jeff Weiner, who's the CEO of LinkedIn, spoke to our group of fellows at one point. And he said, he said something about trust. And I wrote him afterward and I said, how do, you, how do you define trust? And he said so clearly, and it stuck with me. He said, trust is standing by your commitments. That's what trust is all about. And this is a moment in which we need business leaders to stand by the commitments that they're making. And um, there's a lot of good examples of people to look to, but there's also, as you mentioned, Valiant, there's value destroying examples that we've learned from and hopefully we'll continue to learn from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and this is a a theme that I've certainly been very much involved with for the last probably decade, which is, you know, and I, I work at a business school, like I get it, I get right. profits, I get shareholders. I mean, I understand they're an important constituency and everything, but um, a couple of things I think that have been, I'll say points of ideology over the last, however you date it, most people date it to the seventies and the Friedman doctrine, um, but maybe it even had its roots before, but this whole notion that, you know, the shareholders deserve a return. Um, and in the book, you have a very articulate rebuttal of that idea, which I know people like Bill Lazonic and others have also rebutted, which is that the, the, the shareholders who had investment at risk were those that invested in the initial stages of company formation or in the IPO. After that, everybody else is market trading. They're not. That's know. right. So I don't know That's if you right. like to go through that. As just well, I, I just, you know, there was another one of those epiphanies. Um, it's a combination of Marjorie Kelly, who wrote The Divine Right of Capital, and Roger Martin, who wrote, you know, Fixing the Game. Um, and both have written many other things, but, um, you know, it's a design question. You know, one of the, one of the rules in the book is um, that draws us to the fact that, you know, financial capital is no longer a scarce resource. It is not the center. It is not, you know, which is, we're no longer living in the time when, you know, when, um, you know, car companies were, you know, GM was at the top of the, you know, asset tables, you know, companies are capital light. Companies go public without even raising capital in the market. All they're going, they're basically just doing a listing in order to take out their 
their original you know, investors. Mm -hmm. So why do we spend so much focus and narrative and design metrics for the you know, capital markets? You know, the, the impetus, and we have seen this for a very long period of time when we were first working on the questions post Enron around short-termism in business and capital markets. As we try to assemble a table in dialogue, we would, we would, you would be able to feel how much more motivation there was for you know, the issuers, the real companies, and there were for, for the capital markets actors who were seeing something through a much different lens. You know, the motivation for those who actually are in business to create a, a product, a service that is not about financing a third party, but is, is close to their own reason for getting up in the morning is, um, is, is much more profound. And so, you know, it's, it's remarkable how much attention is still being paid to the share price, even though we've certainly seen a moment where there's been a lot of pulling back and saying, you know, that that era is over and we need to move on to one that is more robust and healthier that puts the health of society at the center. Well, and there's a tremendous amount of work um, sort of which runs in parallel to, I think, the arguments you make in your book, looking at the financialization of the United States economy. And I think that's another piece of this story, which is is. today, you know, you can get up in the morning, eat breakfast by made by a company that's owned by a private equity firm. You can go to work in a vehicle that's been financed by a hedge fund. You can operate in a building which is owned by a real estate investment trust. You can go home from work, you know, and, and the whole thing. I mean, the, the private sector has taken over so much of, of um, the economy, the real economy, and the private sector is not motivated by the same things that motivated builders. So just one very trivial example is the hotel business, right? Um, I mean, it used to be if you owned a hotel, you bought a bunch of land, you built a property, you operated, that was your business. Um, once people saw the capability of separating out the ownership of the real estate from the management of the hotel, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself, it, it brought capital into the business and everything. But what you now have is people who are in decision-making capabilities who actually have zero interest in what a hotel is. As far as they're concerned, it could be a farm, it could be a museum, it could be a, you know, whatever, because all we're interested in is the underlying real estate asset value. (laughs) And I think it just supports decision-making throughout the economy. And it, and it raises a question about intentions. Like what is the intention when you make the decision to do that? What are you intending to do exactly? What's behind that decision? It calls, me back to this, another of the the rules in the book that I think we're experiencing in this moment so much that, you know, employees are no longer viewed as just a cost of the business. You know, the employees are the business. And yet we have companies that have up to, you know, 50% or more of their their so-called employees are really contractors today. So we've taken people that are still working in the name of the business that may be working on the other side of the cubicle from you and they don't have the same rights or the same benefits or the same kind of financial and, and uh, you know, job security. And not only is that something that's being exposed, um, but it's something that brings you back to say, well, why are we doing that? Like when we're outsourcing jobs, understandably, you know, Apple probably needed to go offshore in order to get the manufacturing capacity that they needed to perfect the iPhone. Um, There's certainly a case to be made for that. But when you're outsourcing jobs, are you looking to protect yourself? Are you looking to um, simply save money? And 
to what end? You know, if 90% of our profits today are being returned to shareholders, back to the question of why, you know, what, what, what are we aiming to do? So we have this incredible example in the last 10 days where 220 employees of Google have now formed a union. You know, employees are not going to stay quiet here and they relate. They are like a force that is both under, looks at questions from the outside and is experiencing them on the inside and can make those kinds of connections. And those employees have invited contractors to be a part of that union. So it's not going to be the normal kind of union. It's going to have a different kind of voice and we will see if it has the potential to grow and to become a force. I think watch this space, I think. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Because you know, there are a couple of really interesting articles that have come out in the last year or so. One of them was, there's no such thing as class warfare, the rich one. You know, to have class warfare, you have to have two sides. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one. And then another was just looking at the, uh, some of the work of Zainab Tom, for example, at MIT mm-hmm. has been doing. Great them. work. Uh, yeah. They're brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But her analysis that I think the number was 45 million Americans are working at jobs that pay less than $15 an hour, mm-hmm. that have irregular hours, that are just horribly exploitative. I mean, it's like, it's like feudalism in a modern wrapping. Half of the states in the country, I think it is still have, are still at a minimum, the federal minimum wage. Which is $7 and something. Seven twenty-five, I believe. It's, it's, it's just, it boggles my mind. And has not changed in over a decade. So, you know. So how, how did we get there? Because, you know, I do think um, there there is a lot of grievance sort of in the land about the game being rigged and, you know, people not looking out for ordinary citizens. And, and you know, there is a certain amount of empirical validity to that argument. So take right. offshoring, just as an example. Um, there's some really interesting work being done on the local consequences of global outsourcing decisions. And, you know, you don't even have to go much farther than that. I'm in Princeton right now and uh, up the road we have Trenton. And there was a fascinating book written about what happened to the small manufacturers and the laborers in Trenton when those firms got bought by big global companies and essentially everything that had been manufactured there was outsourced. And yet we don't pay any attention to the local consequences of those things. And yes. so I just wonder how we got to that place where that stopped mattering. Well, it, it, does, it does kind of start with Milton Friedman, yeah. um, but it took a big step forward when uh, scholars said the way to assure that um, you know, in, in the 70s and the 80s, when it felt that we had lost our kind of as a, you know, we were losing our national competitive advantage to Japan and, and other economies that were starting to move forward and adopt some ways of operating that we were kind of maybe slow to move toward, um, you know, the sense that if you, the shareholder becomes an organizing principle mm-hmm. in that moment. So it becomes a single objective function that becomes the organizing principle and starts to advance the ideas that, you know, by you know, scholars at Harvard and elsewhere about, you know, let's, let's tie the executive to the stock price. And then we'll, you know, we'll all go home happy. And in the long run, you know, we're all better off and rising tide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of those ideas have been under, undermined today by our reality, by, um, by the experience and by our leaders, our business leaders who have said it's not working for us and we've never run. Some of them would say we've never run our business this way and they're right. I think the the piece I would agree with is that managers, business executives who run their, these extraordinarily complex companies, none of them can manage by one 
you know, a single objective function, the idea is, is preposterous. Of course, there are myriad influences and inputs that are critical to your success. Deep supply chain, I mean, you know, Pepsi, tens of thousands of farmers that they need to try to figure out how to corral to produce all the potatoes they need for the, you know, Lay's potato chips. I mean, these, these are complex endeavors and you simply don't get there without being very clear. First of all, what, what are you really trying to accomplish and what is absolutely critical to your long-term success? And then one of the things that are more layered and that maybe are more nuanced, but getting clear about those and then aligning those intentions with your operations is of course really, really hard work is. And so I, I do think, you know, Milton Friedman is 50 years ago. I think we're moving on. We have a crack here in the, in the belief system, but there are things that are still holding us back. And I believe the narrative has not been, it's, it's, it's not that it doesn't continue to exist in some domains. And we've talked about how important the financial sector is. That's, that's one where it may still be uh, alive and well. Hopefully, um, the other, another, we've got the narrative, we've got the business school classrooms that are still teaching to that effect. And then we have this complex question of how are we paying our executives? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I write about these six rules and then I have a couple chapters about the things that are holding us back. And one of the ones is pay. You know, we're, we're still are, we still have our CEOs tethered to stock price or to measures that are linked to stock, total shareholder return being the most common one. Mm -hmm. And you can say it's long-term, but if 60, 70, 80% of your, of your pay is wrapped up in the stock price, I'm pretty sure I know what you're thinking about when you get up and brush your teeth. In the Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, yeah, and I think, I think that's, in many ways, a story of unintended consequences that you know, all the decades of effort that have been made to do something about CEO pay have ended up actually unfortunately producing the consequence of where we are, which is this link to stock price and, and, and so forth. Um, and very, you know, just very, very interesting in terms of, of why do we so often get an outcome we didn't really intend to get. Yes, I think that's true. I think it's I really do believe when the, you know, when we had this amazing moment a year ago, August, when the business roundtable, which um, many of your listeners, I'm sure, or watchers here um, know what that is. But in case for those who don't, it's a, it's a group of 200 companies today that make up it's the largest or most influential trade association of business executives. And they don't all walk and step with one another. I mean, they have their own enterprises. They come from different parts of the country, but you know, they usually can agree on a, only a couple of things, you know, reduce our taxes and get rid of regulation. But we're seeing this moment where that has shifted, shifted profoundly. And they did come out with a statement a year ago, um, August, uh, essentially saying, we are going to restate the purpose of the corporation. Let's remind ourselves and commit to the fact that they're, they call it stakeholders. I don't tend to use that language because I think it hides who we need to pay attention to, but they have to pay attention to their employees today. They are dominant. They are a dominant force mm -hmm. and are the real accountability mechanism in companies. They of course need to worry about the license to operate wherever they, wherever they are. They know is another one of the rules, uh, the new rules is that they don't really get to define responsibility. That mm -hmm. is defined way outside the great gate and we have lots of examples of clever NGOs who are tactically sophisticated at harnessing your brand and making a case example um, 
for a larger purpose to be served, whether it's, you know, security of fisheries or the, you know, climate change or, you know, deforestation. I mean, they're- I'd, they're I'd love to cool. get into a couple of those examples because sure. I think, I think we, we often just don't pick our heads up enough and say, where, where are the points of leverage? And I think one of the phrases in the book that really caught my attention was when Phil Knight was talking about Nike. And he said, right now, when people think of Nike, they think of child exploitation, they think of slavery, and they think of ecological you know, devastation. And that's not how I want people thinking about Nike. Right. Um, and, and Rebecca Henderson also uses the Nike example as a case in point of how you can't do it alone, I think is part of the problem, right? That, right. that you know, you, you can't unilaterally decide you're gonna change the rules for every company on the planet. And there's always gonna be someone who's gonna take advantage. So what are some more examples of that, that those kind of points of leverage where you really can have an impact on what the corporation is thinking about? Well, I mean, he really said, you know, Phil Knight said game over, you know, was Nike the worst actor? Absolutely not. You know, I'm sure there were all kinds of, um, you know, pieces maybe of their supply chain, but everybody else's supply chain who was in the shoe or clothing business of things that they wouldn't have been proud of if they if they were exposed. But they were a brand that could be utilized to make a larger point about human rights and labor conditions. One of the companies that I, I and I hold Nike in very high regard for the changes they made. And, you know, they continue to do some things that are remarkably bold. Levi Strauss is another one. Levi Strauss, I mean, they didn't need to have their feet held to the fire, but they have this remarkable family legacy that somehow has, has equipped them over decades to continue to kind of be the first mover on some important changes. And one of the things they did is that they simply went totally transparent about their sources of supply. They didn't want to be pulled down by their industry. They wanted to be able to continue to lift up their industry and by going totally transparent, this is not something you do if you're worried mostly about competition, because of course you're not gonna release, it's like releasing your IP if you're a drug company. So they released all of their source of supply because they believed that in the world of you know, radical transparency, it would lift everybody up and that they would, they would need to be held to a higher standard and so that anybody could see where they were manufacturing. So those examples are important. There's a lot of examples in the environmental domain, you know, companies that have been, um, McDonald's is a remarkable example. Their brand is always vulnerable because they're such a massive brand in the United States and around the world. They're vulnerable to any campaign that comes along. It started with styrofoam, it's now beef, and they, they have learned and are uh, have really moved the needle on some remarkably important things by saying, we're always going to be targeted. We're used to that. We need to leapfrog forward and get a hold of an issue like beef and its contribution not only to um, carbon, but all kinds of other pieces of that supply chain that they don't control. It's controlled by no one, really. So they have to amass their entire supply chain, their competitors, as well as people who are down, you know, downstream from them or upstream from them in order to really make a change. And so that's a, that's, that's a kind of work that companies that are really thinking longer term um, and are equipped to do so are doing. And they, their partnerships, they, they, you know, require working well with, intermediaries and NGOs and people they don't necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talk um, about among among the forces and, and I'm always, I, I, I'm a big believer in um, William Baumol who was an uh, economist at um, 
at NYU many, for many years. And one of his lesser known, but very important pieces of research was, he said, you know, if you assume a, a, a given level of entrepreneurial talent in any society, that talent can be directed productively. So value creating new businesses, uh, um, things that really make people's lives better, things that contribute to society. It can be unproductive. And he would put most of the financial sectors mm -hmm. in that model. So allocating capital to various activities, that doesn't create new wealth. I mean, it, it, it does certain things that are necessary, but it, it that's not where the next, you know, life-saving drug is going to come from. Um, and he said it, you can also have it destructive. And that's when the incentives in a society tilt towards corruption or, uh, you know, um, leaving behind the rule of law, ignoring property rights, those kinds of things. Um, and so the, the question I would have is how we seem to have tilted so much more to the incentives in our economy being this kind of unproductive financial engineering, mm -hmm. not the real economy. So how do we begin to move back? And, you know, I'm encouraged. There's a lot of voices now. Uh, so I had Roger Martin uh, on, on, on a fireside chat. I've talked to Rebecca Henderson, uh, people, like, people like Peter Georgescu, certainly yourself, Thomas Piketty, you know, writing about the, the inequality, just distorting all the incentives in our society. But you and I were talking earlier and, you know, the clouds are lifting a little bit. We've got a ray of sunshine. What, what do we do to capitalize on that? Well, I think it does start with, you know, it's always this yin and yang, right? Yin and yang, that it starts with um, leaders, you know, taking bold steps. And there's plenty to learn from here. Um, but the, but I am, I am drawn, I'll, I'll come back for a second to this question of CEO pay. Mm -hmm. No one can do this for them. How will the change take place? There are some, you know, there's, it's not the only blind spot here, but um, I'd, I'd, I think I'd speak similarly about contract workers and um, our haste to outsource jobs in that respect. Um, you know, policies on how do we think about paying taxes is another one of those third railed issues. We don't really, you know, will we see different results in this next year when there is an, when there will undoubtedly be um, attempts in a new administration to, um, you know, raise taxes on high wealth individuals as well as corporations. Will, will the, will the, Business community use this moment to essentially say, you know, we want a hard fought battle under the Trump administration to reduce a remarkably high tax rate, 36, 37, 38%, down to something closer to 20%, 21, 22. Um, that was a hard fought battle. But what the, the piece that they didn't do then was to finish the job and lift up everybody to the 24% level continued to apply favor unfavorable advantage uh, you know companies continued to secure their own favorable tax treatment um, and so we're you know we don't we don't end up feeling that somehow this accomplished something that was really that the business community was responding in kind and saying thank you we got something that's critically important to us and now how do we continue to make sure that we put the health of society, at the, at the center 
of how we think about tax payment. You know, we're still hiding taxes here and there. There's still a robust industry that's, you know, engaging in transfer pricing and all of these things that make it possible to keep money offshore and to et cetera. So, you know, I think it's, I'm back to calling forth on the business community. You know, we've had this remarkable moment in this last, in this, we're, we're having this conversation um, days away from the inauguration of a, a new president and after the Capitol has been, you know, ransacked by a, a mob, horrible violence and, you know, business leaders courageously started saying, we're not gonna, I don't know if it's courage or not really, but started saying we can't have our money associated with people that are not holding up the rule of law in this case. But, you know, I hope that again, the business community is gonna go deeper here and say, what is our money in politics designed to do to begin with? And is this really gonna be a moment of reckoning about the cesspool of, of uh, you know, money in politics? Or is this just gonna be a momentary pause and then back to business as usual? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing on pay. We, how does the change take place? It typically takes place when you have a small core of companies that do something different that courageously change the norms and the conventions. This is something that Roger Martin has written about in, in the work, uh, you know, the article he called the virtue matrix, where you have a company that disrupt, disrupts the norm, changes how we think about what's possible, and then elevates their competitors, as opposed to, um, even though they had put themselves at unfair advantage in doing so, and changing CEO pay means putting yourself personally at unfair advantage. You're not gonna be paid as much, but you're also gonna think differently about what are we paying the executive to do? And what is the health of the enterprise need? We had a call on pay yesterday, our own webinar um, to elevate the work that we've been doing for years that has resulted in a set of principles of pay called the modern principles of sensible and effective pay. Oh. And one of the things we talked about there, uh, our partners at Corn Ferry, um, Don Loman from Corn Ferry was on the call with us. And he said, you know, I wish there were companies that would essentially zero basis. Let's start over. If we were designing pay fresh, how would it look in this moment where a CEO is a leader now of a community? They have leadership of an ecosystem. They are not just leading an enterprise in terms of a traditional way of it's being measured on the balance sheet. They understand the new rules that the real value is locked into intangibles and things that are hard to measure. This is a fundamental change and they know they need to lead into that. Well, then how would we pay the executive? Understanding that we have reasserted and if there's anything we've learned in COVID is that our, our enterprise really is employees. They are the enterprise. So what would that look like if we were designing differently the compensation system and assuring that we're not putting the stock price at the center. Instead, we're putting the health of the long-term health of our enterprise at the center. And you've spoken in the book about the duty of directors to look after the long-term health of the enterprise itself. And I mean, I've, I've been working this last year a lot with boards, especially a, a fabulous group called Extraordinary Women on Boards, which is- Ooh, that sounds yeah. great. Oh, we need more of them. 
they're amazing. They're amazing. Um, and they come together and they talk about, um, you know, things that maybe they wouldn't feel comfortable sharing in a, a mixed group, but they can really be very honest with each other. And what they are very hungry for is how would I know? What are the metrics? You know, what, what, what would tell me that this organization is being managed, in fact, for the longer term? Um, and we don't have incredibly well-developed metrics yet, although I do think the World Economic Forum is making some efforts along that regard. So, you know, trying to measure some of these intangibles mm -hmm. that we write about. Right. Um, you know, so you talk you about the, the intangibles that underlie business value. Uh, you talk about trust, you talk about access to talent, natural resources, um, you know, things that really just can't fall into a dollar and cents calculus. You know, I've got a, um, I've got a little sticky on my wall that I just grabbed to get this quote right. But there's a um, scholar named Jerry Mueller, I think he's out of Stanford, who wrote a book called Tyranny of Metrics. Mm. And he calls us onto this question of how do we know and the design of metrics. And he reminds us, I'm just gonna read his quote. Metrics lose their meaning when used to reward or punish performance rather than to diagnose and analyze. Mm. I love that thought because a lot of the noise about metrics, ESG metrics, environments, social governance metrics is about simplistic comparisons between firms designed for investors who want to raise money in pursuit of good ends, but need to be able to make comparisons to decide which, which companies get to go in the fund and which ones don't. I am much more interested in, in my, I'm not gonna call it metrics, but ways of measuring. Mm -hmm. I, the, you know, the analogy I would use is the quality movement. Mm -hmm. when, when the tall, you know, TQM, total quality management took, um, took hold, it wasn't about the metrics per se, it was about processes. It was about a set of ideas, you know, the, the, you know, empowering employees to stop the, you know, the assembly line if they saw something wrong. Wouldn't have, that have been great if they had done that at Boeing? Um, what, how, do we, um, how do we measure then the processes? How do we make sure that we are well informed so we can see where the system is not do creating the right kind of thing. Clearly that's part of the intention when you're doing um, healthy surveying of consumers to understand whether or not your product is landing well. Certainly that's what employee engagement scores are about is you really wanna understand, do my employees, do they wanna be here? Do they understand why they are here? What are they thinking about? What's their reaction to who we are and what we are today? And are they, are they fully present? That's about diagnosing. It's not about simplistic metrics and measures that, um, so good on them to be trying to think this through and we hope we can learn from them. Mm, absolutely. And who was the quote from? We're being asked by our- Jerry Z. Muller, I believe, M-U-L-L-E-R. And the book is called Tyranny of Metrics. Lovely. And I, I found it in a podcast, um, uh, under the title "Stop Metrics Mania," so that's fantastic. So, one of the things that uh, you've mentioned in the book that uh, you know I've read about elsewhere was the really remarkable consensus among business leaders um, after World War II that they got together in this thing called the um, what was it the, the Committee for Economic Act. Development? Yeah. Committee for Economic Development, and that they essentially created a template that they all bought into, in which one of the responsibilities they felt business had was to create and maintain good jobs and therefore to create and enable 
a healthy middle class. Um, and, and it just seems to me that so much of what we learned then was very useful and very practical. And the sort of great unraveling we've had since the 70s has mm -hmm. proved to be a, a, a pretty disastrous experiment for an awful yes. lot of people. Yes. CED went on to, it's now part of the conference board. It uh, was led for many years by um, Steve Odlin, who had been uh, CEO of Autodesk, among others. Mm -hmm. And um, he and he, he partnered uh, with us when he had, when it was still CEO and was part of the business roundtable on the work that we did on short-termism. So I got to know this story by getting to know CED a bit. And it is a remarkable story. And it was, a, it was you know, I was just talking to a colleague this is a similar moment. I mean, the moment we had coming out of World War II, it, this is just as important a moment of transition, but we're not all united right now. And so, you know, it's a, it's a powerful idea. It's an awesome responsibility to think that the business community could be a useful part of reuniting us as a country and enabling us to take an important step forward. We've got a lot of good work to do, you know, We've got important changes that have to happen as a result to be part of the global leader we wanna be on climate. Um, just as one example, we have our own healing to do. You know, these people that feel that they are looked down on um, and that need both, I think some compassion as well as a reckoning about whether or not we're distributing um, the goods fairly in this country? These are complicated questions, but they are not removed from business and its agency. And so I think we need to call on business to be able to think about their own, what, what is, you know, boards almost need to do an audit. Mm -hmm. Where do they actually have levers to pull? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's going to result, what's going to require regulation to raise the bar, but where is there a real agency within the business decision-making? And um, that's a good place to start. And then there are other roles that business leaders clearly play. You know, their voice has become important. Employees expect them to align with the things that they hold dear. And then of course there is this remarkable power they have if they work in coalition. Mm -hmm. And we have started to see the business sector name racism, as a problem that they have a role in addressing. Well, that's, we would not have seen that 10 years ago. I'm not sure we could have seen it five years ago or even you know, a year ago, but we certainly are seeing it now. So maybe, we'll, maybe, maybe we will see the commitment um, that we need. Well, and there is a new generation of leaders too yes. uh, coming up, you know, which, which I think is interesting. Um, yes. Certainly, when I first started teaching at the business school, which would have been in the early 90s, um, we were still very much in the, you know, leader as Jack Welsh, superstar CEO on the front page of Forbes kind of moment. Um, and I, I would say even in the business schools, what we've seen is, and they're, they're probably slow. I mean, you write about this in the book, you know, that the business school curriculum is sort of so, the toolkit is so oriented towards these metrics that have been with us historically, these financial metrics. Um, but I think we're starting to see a real shift in what people are you know, looking for leaders to do. And in my own work of, of looking at how entities navigate through inflection points. So that's one of the things I've been looking at recently. And of course, you know, we're in the middle of this like- Oh my God. Inflection point right now. Yeah, yeah. I write another book real quick this weekend, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> they actually want me to write an afterword to the original oh. book. They want to rush out in paperback now. Um, but one of the things that I have observed is that the leaders that seem to be best at getting us through this are not that Jack Welsh archetype leader who sort of tells everybody what to do. It's much more this notion of somebody who convenes, who's listening, who's finding new information, who's sort of corralling of a yep. coalition of the willing is yep. much more the model that I see. Is that what you're seeing as well? Absolutely. You know, somebody uh, in a recent conversation said, well, what's the one thing you'd advise CEOs to do? And it's like, listen deeply, listen to your own employees. And we've seen some remarkable examples of this. One of the ones I write about is Walmart. You know, Lee Scott, when he was CEO, when in Hurricane Katrina bearing down and this remarkable moment where Walmart trucks were loaded up and finally made it into the center of of New Orleans burying things that people who were stranded needed and him realizing that that was good press for Walmart and this was a change making moment. He had been pummeled by labor unions and he had been pummeled by environmentalists for things that may are in his control, but were being ignored. And um, we saw a remarkable turnaround and Walmart starting to harness their own supply chain to hit environmental goals on energy, on packaging, on a host of different things. Um, and we've seen the same thing with Doug McMillan, who's CEO there now and is now the chair of the business roundtable. And so his leadership is doubly, triply, quadruply important. Mm -hmm. And in the in the wake of, of the gun, in, you know, the, the mass shootings, um, killings in two Walmart stores that happened, um, when was that? A year ago already? Um, you know, the news cycle these days is like, I go to one end of the, to the tank and the news cycles this, and then I go to the other yes, end. Where, are, where <laughs> are we exactly? What month is it? Um, March Ember is what I've been calling it. <laughs> but what he did is he listened. He took that moment to listen deeply to his employees. And that gave him the answer, you know, that they did need to pull more of the things that were associated with gun ownership. They'd already stopped, you know, selling many um, weapons, but they, they pulled the rest of it off the shelves and I'm sure took their hit for the moment. Um, but he knew it was the right thing to do and he did it because he listened to his employees. Mm -hmm. They were at risk. Another, another great example is uh, Mark Bertolini when he was at Aetna. And in, this is an interesting point that Zainab makes too, which is, you know, it's very easy when you're, you know, you're in the corner office and everybody you meet is doing, was it who Herbert Hoover said, you know, everybody I meet is doing really well. And then yeah. of course is they have to be doing well or they don't come in contact with me. <laughs> you know, so there's a, a kind of a cluelessness. And uh, what Zainab would say is that many of these CEOs are actually shocked when presented with the facts of yeah. the day-to-day -day lives of their workers. And, yeah. and I think what hit home for Mark um, Bertolini when he was CEO at Aetna was that there was a big chunk of his workforce, I think it was 40%, that could not afford to pay for Aetna's product. Yeah. They paid so little, they couldn't afford to pay yep. for their own company's health insurance product. Yep, and he and brought everybody up to at least $50,000 a year, if I recall, and that was the decision that he made. We're seeing other executives doing it. You know, Dan Schulman at PayPal has been raising this question. There's a wonderful organization that I uh, am you know, lucky to be on the board of uh, called the Financial Health Network, mm -hmm. and they have a national pulse survey where they, um, Jennifer Tesher, the CEO, she'd be a good guest for you. Um, is, you know, they, they kind of take the, the pulse of uh, Americans every year around their kind of financial security. 
done extraordinary work on that. And they are also working with executives or working with companies on trying to take the pulse of their own employees. And it's, it's bringing up important data for them. So you have to, I think it's really important when, when a company can start with their own, it takes down this barrier that this is not their, their problem. It's not that I'm saying, I'm not, I, look, I am, I have deep, I love working with business people. They get up in the morning and the glass is half full. Those of us who live in the nonprofit sector, it's always half empty. You know, <laughs> we don't even know I get it even, you know, 51%, you know, full. Um, you know, we see the problem. That's how we organize our work is a problem. And business organizes its thinking around possibility, around opportunity. Risk, yes, of course, but also around where the opportunity resides. And I think when it's when the opportunity is presented around their own employees, it takes down the barriers to action that might exist if somebody is sitting. That's why the, the contract piece is so important. They also need to be measuring the health of their contract workers. And if they measure the health of their contract workers, it will help them understand another way to unlock better value for the enterprise and to be making sure that their intentions the purpose that they, they state is aligned with reality and with aligned with their own operating decisions. Mm -hmm. So do you see some kind of structure that would extend to contract workers and to freelance workers and to people that are you know, loosely associated with the firm? Because one of the bargains that the Committee for Economic Development made was they said, we will cooperate with labor, we will take on the burden of providing pensions, healthcare, other goods to employees. We will be supportive of government that fund things, public goods like education, um, and, 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 and. I mean, that was all part of that grand bargain. And of course, pieces right. of that have now kind of come unraveled. And I don't think we, I don't think we're in a position where we want to go backwards. I, I think there was, there, I mean, it was, it was a very useful model for the time. I'm not sure it's the model for now. Um, at the same time, I get companies need flexible flexibility. They need flexible workforces and so forth. But at the same time, it's, you know, if you have an entire population of people living precariously, they're not going to be great workers. They're not going to have the time to be great citizens. They're not going to be able to contribute in other ways. So yeah, I wonder if there's some emergent structure that maybe is starting to look at that. You know, I think in the, Let's remember they created the city, the community CED, Community for Economic Development, that was formed in the, you know, they started working on this well before the war was over. They started back and they were formed in 1943. They said the war is going to end and we will need jobs, people coming home from the front. I think ultimately they, they're credited with having created the infrastructure that trickled down to business leaders in every single community who amassed the coalitions locally. Change happens in place. Let's remember how powerful place is. And when a community where you know each other across the breakfast table, you know, at the local diner, when they make a commitment to action, then everybody's covering each other's backs and the risk is less to bear. So on a national scale, it's harder to do. It's frankly harder to do, but we do, need to start with, I feel this profoundly, that it starts with the mindset of the executive. So I wouldn't be the right one to answer the question. I'd be happy to suggest to you people that you should talk to at the Aspen Institute, my colleagues who run other amazing programs like the Economic Opportunities Program and the financial, um, the programs that deal with financial security as well as jobs. Um, they will, they'll be thinking more about policy and structure. In the Business and Society program, we start with 
what what does the leader believe? You know, we go way up the food chain on vanilla meadows and systems change. And I would start with the question of what are we aiming to do with contract workers? Why are we making the decision we are? What is our true aim there? And is that consistent? Because the first thing we need to do is rethink whether that's the right thing to be doing. Do we accept it as it is, or do we actually at least question the underlying premise of why so many jobs have been put on the other side of the wall? And then there are important, you know, there are temp you know, agencies that employ millions of people. And I think in this moment, you know, companies like ADECO that are actually raising new questions about, are we assuring our responsibility on the other side of this wall? Are we assuring that those jobs are good jobs in all the respects in which Zane Epton would talk about it? Mm -hmm. So I think there's, they also are corporate citizens, right? They also have responsibilities. So that is part of our reality. Contract work isn't going away anytime soon. And uh, maybe it shouldn't. I mean, maybe it's a good thing to do. And maybe there's different ways to approach this question, but it does get back to business leadership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your book is um, just freshly out. Uh, I, I hope Three I days. Yeah, I know. And well, you've been getting tremendous press. I mean, and I think partly the, the activities of last week have just, you know, ripped so many bandages off of so many wounds that people are very hungry for positive insight, you know, people that have some answers or, or at least the beginnings of the right questions. And I love your question about what is it we're trying to do? I think that's very profound when you really dig into it. You know, why do we have so many contract workers? Um, why do we have, you know, some of these business practices that everybody kind of recognizes aren't really uh, great. So what do you hope happens in the next, you know, month or two? Where where would you like to see some changes making? When I, I, I talk a lot, I was talking to um, uh, a reporter for the Financial Times and he was asking me the question, why, why would we, what are some of the indicators that we would start to see more human workplaces and more thoughtful societies and less inequality? And I said, well, what I'm seeing is lots of pockets of people from all kinds of uh, backgrounds thinking about this. So we got you know thought leaders like yourself and Roger Martin and Rebecca Henderson and, and business leaders, you know, really coming out and saying, and uh, people even in, in policy forums and, and so forth. So there's sort of these little bits of, 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 of activity in a lot of different places. And I think it, it needs a spark, you know, it needs something to kind mm -hmm. of come together. And maybe that's what we're beginning to get toward now. Well, you know, few months is a short period of time. It's impossible for me to talk about a few months if I take your question literally mm -hmm. and not tie it back to the, you know, outset of the, you know, the new, the hundred days, you know, the hundred days that Biden will have to um, set the agenda. And um, business is going to be a part of that conversation. Without a doubt, I would put it's, you know, clearly, I don't have to worry about the pandemic. Somebody else is going to worry about that one. So I'm not going to speak to that one, although we obviously all hope that we get better management of this um, going forward. And we know that as uh, we keep on getting told by marketplace every morning, the pandemic is the economy. So um, these are not an important questions. And presumably that is going to continue to be top priority for now. But, you know, I'm hopeful that this is a moment of reckoning and, it is an opportunity for business leaders to really address some of the blind spots that exist here. And I think they do exist in the context of thinking about what's business's role and what's government's role. 
Robert Reich, I think, said it best, you know, when he first started writing on these questions in the late 70s and, you know, I don't even know, possibly earlier than that, but I remember reading a, a um, you know, a manuscript that I think was released through, through um, the, Berkeley Law, the Berkeley Law Journal or the Management Journal at Berkeley. And it was essentially saying, you know, what is corporate social responsibility? You can't have it both ways. He was going, looking at the question of money and politics, that you can't expect the rule of law and at the same time be using money to turn the law to your own advantage. So will we see it, you know, business leaders don't lose their voice. They gain their voice if they put their, it's a society at the, at the center of these questions. Most business leaders, we've seen this work that Jeff Sonnenfeld has been doing um, to, con, to kind of early morning phone calls among uh, chief executives to help them listen to one another about what to do in this moment. And, um, you know, I hope it's a real reckoning because I think we'll see it in, in the posture around political spending. The most important one for me is climate. What happens on climate? And will the business community um, amass the kind of coalition building that supports the next administration in bringing about profound change on getting a price on carbon? That that problem is not going to recede. It's going to continue to pummel us, and it 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 hurts people disproportionately. People of less means have a harder time contending with it, and it's been devastating for communities all over the world. And so we don't have a choice. We have to move aggressively. Pepsi just announced, I think, yesterday or the day before, amazingly aggressive goals. This is this is a profound moment where they have stepped in a company that has. A remarkable footprint, you know, it's almost different than when Microsoft did at the beginning of the year because their their footprint is so profound. So I am encouraged by what I'm seeing. I'm hopeful that business will step in in this moment and and really use this moment to also restore trust in business because again, standing by our intentions with our actions is the work that's ahead of us now. So we'll see. That's, that's uh, really uh, inspiring. So, you know, readers, listeners may be new to this whole set of uh, activities. Where do they go to get smarter? What, would you, what, what resources would you recommend they go check? Buy my book. Buy the book, totally. And I, do I get to say that? See, I'm, this course. is my first time at the rodeo. I'm having a hard time being self-promotional. But they can certainly go to the book website, which is my name, judysamuelson.com. Mm-hmm. You can order at your local bookstore or wherever bookstores are sold. I, I commend a, a site called bookshop.com, uh, which allows you to both buy the book online quickly, but then you can find my page there, but also um, in the process, uh, support your own local bookstore. So I love bookshop.com. That's great. a great, that's a great resource right there. That's so, um, you know, there's a lot of resources. We have a lot of resources on the Aspen Institute's website, our own business society program. If you're interested in the work in business education, we have deep, deep, deep work in that domain. And I, I think business schools have made remarkable change and we need to celebrate the change at the same time that we lean in on expect change in, in how we teach finance. Yes. So there's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot of the work that we've been doing and I'll call out one more thing on worker voice. And a, and a creative laboratory that's designed to elevate the best thinking about how governance is need, 
need to change to support worker voice and worker power in this moment. So those are those are some of the resources I would cite on our own, you know, Aspen BSP, Aspen Business Society program page. And, uh, but also again, call out the work of many, many, many other fellow travelers. And um, I hope I get it. I hope you save what's in the chat today so I can look at it and- I will, yeah, I'll, I'll forward that on. On some of the things that may have come up specifically here that maybe our team can, can respond to and refer them on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we, uh, we're, we're unfortunately kind of at time. Uh, thank you so much. You're, you've been a, a hero of mine for a long time. So it's a privilege to be able to meet you. And, and Back at you, Rita. Ideas. And, uh, so uh, we'll save the chat. We'll get back to you all. Um, thank you for joining with us and uh, to be continued. And please let me know if I can be of help. You know, if you see places where I, you know, uh, 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 an itinerant business school professor can be of any use, I'd be happy to join in. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it very much.